Hello, welcome to Gritty Leaders Club. This is our Christmas New Year episode. I'm lucky I have some downtime. I know many of you carry on during this period in frontline services, sectors like essential retail and manufacturing where production continues. So thank you, you keep the lights on. And Ian, hi, how are you? I'm great. Yeah, I'm good. And uh, it's a good time to reflect, isn't it? I find, you know, I love Christmas and I love the chance to reflect. You get time with your family, you get time to reconnect with the sort of your soul, to have conversations and to think, where's life going? And and, and what was it like in 2020? What were the good things that came out of 2020? So, yeah, I'm, I'm in a good place. Good, glad to hear it. And well, let me tug on that thread you just gave me. What is your reflection on 2020? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, 2020 um, was for me a great year. Um, It taught me a lot about myself. It taught me that I'm resilient, that I'm creative. And I was fortunate, none of my family got COVID. I, we started this podcast, which was a major tick in the box for me, Ben, in 2020. Um, and I got my book to an editor and I did way more speaking, most of it on Zoom. And it put me in a position to go into 2021, which was which was great and way beyond what I thought back in those dark days of April 2020 when the country was in its first lockdown. So, uh, you know, I'm out of it feeling really good, actually. What about you? I agree. It's been a very productive year. I'm delighted with our podcast, Gritty Leaders Club. Thank you, everyone, for listening. What do I think of 2020? It was so unexpected, wasn't it? And yes, a lot has been gained, but... A lot has been lost and a lot continues to be really uncertain. People have lost jobs. People have lost, I have lost loved ones during the year. I've got to say it's been a pretty horrible year. I suppose what I take from it is to make it count in everything we do. Make it count with family, friends, loved ones make it count. And in our work, make it count. This was a year where it really counted to lead well and find ways through this uncertain year and to find the opportunities and lean into those and spot the problems and get out of those or or answer those. So leadership counted this year, definitely. Simple contribution in work counted this year, definitely. But make it count. If we're bringing our teams together, whether that's physically or virtually, it seems to me in those moments, we can really make it count. This wasn't a year for going through the motions. So what I take from 2020 is the idea that we should always make it count. Like it. Very like it. Really like it. But Ian, let's lighten it up. What we thought we'd do today is each of us pick our three books of the year and say a bit about them. My three are My Life and Rugby by Eddie Jones. It would be unusual if I hadn't picked a sporting book. 
as you know. Uh, and I put to podcast I've mentioned before, which is at the table with Patrick Lancioni, who uh, I love. Uh, and then finally, my third one was a book I read a while ago, but it just keeps coming back to me all the time, which is The Blue Zones by Dan Buebner and National Geographic. Okay. I've read one of those, Blue Zones, great book. So my three, The Core, Better Life, Better Performance. This is a book about and by Aki Hintzer, and it's the book that has inspired me most during the year, and also the book that I've gifted the most copies of. Number two, The Ride of a Lifetime, Lessons in Creative Leadership from 15 Years as CEO of the Walt Disney Company. This is Robert Iger's book and the story of becoming and being the CEO of Disney. Really interesting. My third book is No One is Too Small to Make a Difference. This is Greta Thunberg's book. It's a book I bought last Christmas, kind of a coffee table book, and a book I've come back to a few times during 2020. I've read that one. I read it last Christmas, and I thought it was lovely. I'm glad you've got that on the list. That's a really nice one. Good, good, good. Right, get us going. Tell me about Eddie Jones, my life and rugby. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a, an interesting guy. If you're into sport, into rugby, you'll have seen interviewed a lot. He, he never, he's never short of a word. But let me give you some of his background. Japanese mum, Aussie dad, uh, married to a Japanese wife. So he's got real international connections. He's, uh, he was a rugby player when he started out, as most coaches in rugby are. So he started as a rugby player and he played um, for various clubs and provincially, but never played for Australia, which was, he was never selected for Australia, which hurt him. But as an international coach, he's seen as one of the best in the world now. Um, he, he coached Australia to the final in 2003, where they lost against England. Um, he then admits he stayed on a bit too long and was sacked by them eventually, which is one of the things about being a coach. 2007, he was the assistant coach of the South African team who won the World Cup in 2007. And he then went on to coach Japan, which at the time was seen as a strange decision, you know, a bit of a, bit of a wilderness for rugby. Um, but Japan went on to, in the World Cup hosted in, in England in 2015, to beat South Africa, you know, one of the giants of rugby. And it, it sent shockwaves through the world that Eddie Jones had managed to get this group of people together to beat the mighty South Africa in a neutral country. And they, they didn't just beat them with luck. I've watched that game a few times. Extraordinary game. And Japan have come on to be, uh, you know, a, a, a country that people sort of fear when playing. They play with incredible speed and power. And they showed it again when they hosted the World Cup in 2019, um, where Eddie Jones was then coaching England. Uh, and they beat the All Blacks in an amazing game in the semi-finals and lost South Africa in the final. In, in England, he's, he's done some amazing things. He's you know, been one of the most successful coaches in, in, in the English game after Clive Woodward. He's, run, he's won um, three Six Nations championships, the Nations Cup. Um, recently and has the longest winning streak of any international team. So, um, you know, he's an interesting guy. What are the lessons from the book? Because um, I wanted to sort of uh, contrast them with, with kind of leadership lessons and compare them. The first thing I'd say is this is a guy who thinks ahead. He, he has really powerful visions and goals for the team. 
uh, and he's got the team repeating, which I think is interesting. You know, he you you hear the team interviewed, and they will say, "We want to be the number one team in the world," uh, and, and they're saying that. You know, they're believing that. They're not. You can see the way they say it now. They believe it. When he started off, he put uh, he wanted to get a new captain when he started with England, so he brought in a, um, an ex uh, New Zealander who who had come into the UK and settled here and got some nationality called Dylan Hartley, and and Dylan Hartley was a guy with a bad disciplinary record, but he was a great communicator and he had real edge. That's why he had the bad disciplinary record. And he wanted something, somebody with real edge. He reckoned that the English team needed somebody at the front to set the example of how they were going to play rugby. And so he brought him in and a lot of people looked at him and said, God, you're mad. You know, this guy's a bit mad, a bit crazy. Um, but he proved them wrong. Dylan Hartley became a really good captain, but he had one eye on the next captain. So he brought in as his vice captain a guy called Owen Farrell, a northerner, a young guy at the time who's turned out to be one of the number one players in the world. And he's coached him and he's now the captain. So that's the first lesson. He kind of thinks ahead. Second lesson is he's brought in a great team around him. So he didn't, uh, as a lot of these great coaches do, he looked at what do we need here? He brought in some uh, fantastic guys like um, Steve Borthwick as a coach, uh, he brought in a great um, defence coach, uh, Gustard. He brought in a data analyst who started to look at machine learning and key metrics and see what they could learn from people on the rugby field, um, which was novel. And it's um, uh, given him great uh, information to work with. And he brought in a guy called Frank Dick, um, who has coached all sorts of people around the world, really at the top of his game. And he started to work with them, as he did with the England uh, football team, on the four fatal fears. You may have heard of Frank Dick being a performance coach, which is uh, we're all afraid of four things, which are getting it wrong, losing, rejection and criticism. And he started getting people on the psychology of winning, which is interesting. A couple of other things to say, he improved the basics. You know, so for, you know, for leaders, get the right team around you, think ahead, improve the basics, fitness, defense. He looked outside rugby. I mentioned that in one of our other podcasts. He looked at Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, Pochettino, um, Barcelona. And he had a mentor. He's had a mentor for years. He was a media consultant called David Pembroke or Pemby, as he calls him. Um, and the other thing I think is he is not afraid of trying new things, of putting real stretch goals in there. And he, he and this business of getting teams to adapt on the hoof, this was the, the interesting thing. Again, big crossovers to business. When things are happening on the pitch, so you do all the preparation you need, you go into a game, it's not going your way, things are going differently, you carry on playing the same way. And you see that again and again in football and rugby, where teams seem to just... They're in this groove. They've been trained to play in this way on the park and they carry on playing and they lose because they can't adapt. And he's got England adapting and having coming up with different ways of playing as they move through. So you've got to have a captain on the pitch or three or four captains on the pitch. And this, and I think this is really transferable into business where you say, look, you know, we're three months into the year and things aren't going so well for us. How do we adapt? How do we change? What needs to happen in this team and the way we go about our business? So, yeah, it's a great book. You know, he's a great, he's, he's human, he's vulnerable, mistakes, he admits them, he comes out to the press, he says afterwards, you know, that was my fault, I didn't prepare the team well, he shows up, he's honest, um, 
I like the guy. I'd love to meet him. I think he's inspirational. So that's my first book. Wow. Sounds like you got a ton from it, Ian. And I'm wondering, do you think in business, in organisations, whether it's a team or the entire organisation, are there enough lessons learned from sport and put into practice to good effect in business? Or is it just different? I'm, I'm a firm believer that we don't take enough from the top coaches in world sport. I think because they're, they're tested every single day, and certainly when they play the game, by metrics on that day. So you go in to play a game of rugby on a Saturday, you, get, you win or you lose, and you can see how every player on the pitch has played and you can give them direct feedback. And these guys, I think, you know, whether you look at uh, baseball in America or um, football in America or the top cricket teams or the top football, whatever they are, the guys who are coaching these top teams are, are on the whole, extraordinary people. Um, they get sacked on a whim almost. They lose a couple of games, they're off. They have to be massively resilient, but they are looking so far outside their industries, their business, for new ideas, for new techniques, for psychologists, for data analysis, um, for new ways of doing things. And they they are trying new techniques all the time. I think they're on the I think they're cutting edge of, of leadership as in sport. Um and we can we can learn more than we do at the moment. I think it's uh, at your peril you ignore lessons from from sporting greats. Well, let's perhaps build an episode around this, a future podcast, because there's some big differences, aren't there, between sports and business. In sport, we put a team together for the year quite often, say for the 2021 championship. And that team can change during the year and probably will change. And people come through the team and they're up and coming. And then often in sports, they will leave in their early or mid-30s. So we get this quick turnover. And that's just one of the things which is quite different. Let's build a podcast around this in 2021. Great. So, um, Ben, your first one, what is it? The Core. Again, we're going to elite sports. The Core is a book by and about Dr. Aki Hintzer. Aki was a doctor in Finland, coach to elite athletes, runners, and latterly many of the Formula One world champions. He guided them towards fantastic success. The book is his story. Early in his story, Aki is in Ethiopia, and there he works with with runners and we know how world-beating Ethiopian runners are. Haile Gebrselassie is one. He's the first athlete we hear about in the book and then later Hintzer works with Mika Hakkinen, Kimi Raikkonen, Sebastian Vettel, the list goes on. It's an interesting book on that level alone. You hear a lot about these characters, who they really were, who they really are, as Aki gets to know them. But the book to me is surprising. As you might expect, there's plenty about those things that surround any elite athlete. Aki calls this the circle of success. It contains the focus on general health, biomechanics, physical activity, 
nutrition, rest and sleep, mental energy. And we see teams of trainers around athletes, don't we? Supporting them and leading them in each of these dimensions. But at the heart of it all, there is something else. This is where the title of the book comes from, The Core. The Core is a person's sense of who they are, from which they can draw their direction and their motivation. Aki explores the core through three questions, three incredibly powerful questions. Who am I? What do I want? Am I in control of my life? Let's not even attempt to unpick these here, but I think it's so interesting to find these three questions at the heart of elite sports. Equally, I think many founders, CEOs, leaders in business, anyone in business might be just as surprised that these three questions could be really powerful and help them to be incredibly successful just as they do for elite sports people. The book is great. Check out the TEDx by Anastina Hintzer, Aki's daughter. She is now CEO of the Hintzer organization. Anastina recorded a fantastic TEDx in Bucharest. It's titled Optimizing for a Better Life. She tells the story fantastically in about 15 minutes. Check it out. Wow. This is on my list already. You've convinced me. Um, is, is Aki's um, the central core? It sounds like it's more about the mind leading the body than focusing on the body. That's part of it. But the core sits inside the circle of success. General health, biomechanics physical activity, nutrition, rest, sleep, mental energy, the six pillars that Aki Hintzer puts in the circle of success. And he says, these are the foundation. If any one of those is is weak, we don't have the platform, the foundation for our core. So we need to take care of these six things. And I think that's true in any walk of life, just as it is for an athlete. Then the core, this sense of identity and purpose, that's what gives us direction and motivation. And I think it's interesting, in my experience at least, many people have a clear answer to question number two, what do I want? But they've answered it without first answering question number one, who am I? In the book, Aki tells us about Haile Gebrselassie. His answers, who is he? He's a runner, but also a husband, father and business person. What does he want? To be the best long-distance runner, a source of pride to his country, but above that, to be his family's support and security. So Haile was clear about both what he wanted, but also who he is. And the way he saw himself was broader than running and athletics. And that gave him a capability to cope when things went wrong, the crises that occurred, the ups, the downs, the broader sense of who he is was important. And we have all of those same challenges in any walk of life, don't we? And the book talks about optimal performance rather than peak performance. And there's a ton of books out there on peak performance. So this idea about optimal performance, optimizing, and the connection to not just what we want, but actually, who are we? Who am I? I think that's really interesting, really important. I love that. I'm I'm going to get this book, Ben, and I'm going to listen to the TEDx. Thank you for sharing it. Brilliant.
Uh, this will be a shorter, really, summary uh, of the At The Table podcast with Patrick Lencioni. It's about half an hour. He releases them very regularly. There's loads of them out there. They're funny titles. And it's very quick fire. It's, um, it's authentic. I love Lencioni. He's a very wise person. He's very clear. But he's also vulnerable in his shows where they don't get things right. So I love the way it's done. I love the speed of it, the, the, the uh, intensity of it. Uh, listeners may have read read a number of his books. I've read loads of them, like The Five Dysfunctions was the famous one, Getting Naked About Being a Great Consultant, Death by Meetings, fabulous. Again, The Motive this year, we've spoken about For the Advantage, which is one of his big books. Loads of others on leadership and being a CEO and so on. Interesting topics they take on recently I've listened to. So I've only been listening to it a couple of months, but I'm good. It's, you know, it's on my list now. Um, I, I, one I listened to recently was called Why You Work, about purpose. And we've talked about that and getting people to come into work and being on purpose. Uh, in one I listened to recently was um, challenging the way we, we set up our offices. They were looking at their own offices and saying, and this is very pertinent, of course, uh, with the pandemic and people looking at our office space and what the office is for. Um, and they looked at their own offices and were saying, you know, when you come into our offices, it used to look like an, it, 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 it wasn't decrying the, the industry, but they're kind of like an insurance office, you know. People had desks and uh, laptops on them, and uh, and he they, they used to ask their, their their suppliers and partners and clients when they came in, what do you think of our offices? And they go, well, we're kind of a bit intimidated to go over there because people have all got laptops open and and it seems odd. And they said, well, this is interesting because we are a creative company. We rely on people talking and getting together. Why are we structuring the office in the way we structure it? So they've restructured their offices. They, they work on tables, two or three to a table, and they're just thinking differently about starting with culture. What are we trying to do here? And then how do we design our office space? And, and more and more companies are starting to think that. So that was a really interesting episode. Um, another couple of ones. One, one was called What Do You Suck At?, which was about being honest about who you are, which is a, a nice one. So just recommend it highly. Nice, quick fix, high energy, lots of wise words. That's one of the simple reasons I read or listen to things, just being immersed in someone else's point of view or a line of thoughts that that they're talking about and I hadn't thought about previously. And it shakes us up, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Gets us thinking. And I'm not going to ask you what you suck at because I know you will just ask me back what I suck at. So I'm just not going there. Where I will go is my next book. Again, this will be a this will be a quick one. Uh, this is Greta Thunberg's book. No one is too small to make a difference. It sat on my coffee table in my office, where, where of course I've spent so much time during 2020. And you know, and I pick it up for two or three minutes occasionally, mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, it just reminds me of what it says on the cover: "No one is too small to make a difference." Know what you're about, know what you want to say, say it. And Greta just powerfully demonstrates that. I also enjoy her turn of phrase. She's got a simple, matter of fact, in fact, non judgmental way of talking about tough topics. And that's kind of quite amazing, quite amazing to say, because she's telling politicians they're not doing their job, they're not doing enough, they're letting down her generation. But she delivers that message in service of the big idea rather than in personal attack of the politician or the politicians 
she's talking to. And so it becomes really compelling and the message gets across. I think she's extraordinary. I think she's inspirational. I think she doesn't care who she upsets. I think she's passionate. I think she's doing the right thing. I think she thinks about whether she's doing the right thing. I think she must have had extraordinary parents. Um, I think she's a message. I remember when she got on a, a yacht and went across to America, she didn't want to get in a plane. I think she lived her own messages. Uh, it's a lovely read. It's a lo- it's a, quite a light read, isn't it? But it's but it's also got some some wonderful thoughts in it as well. You know, they're deep. I mean, this is no one's too small to make a difference. You know, I love I love that. Just that phrase. It reminded me straight away of the Marianne Williamson poem, which, you know, I love so much and I use in my TEDx, which ends with your playing small does not serve the world. And it's one of those things that just hits you and you go, am I playing small? Am I making a difference? We're going to go to final one, very uplifting one, actually, which is the Blue Zones, which I read a few years ago. But but I say it keeps coming back to me in many ways because people keep talking about it and I keep talking about it. Um, it had an effect on me, obviously. The Blue Zones is a piece of research, actually, done by Dan Butner and National Geographic, where they travelled around the world, and they looked for the people who lived the longest, who where they had the most centenarians. And they found five places around the world, and they called them the Blue Zones. And they are Okinawa in Japan, a Sardinia island, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, uh, Ikaria in Greece, which is another island, and a group of Seventh-day Adventists in Loma Linda in California, which is sort of, do you think, hey, how did they get in there? But anyway, they're in there and you'll see why. Um, And one of the things they start off by saying is actually research shows that 20% of your longevity comes from your genes and the rest comes from the way you live your life. Now that's, 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 you know, if if you take that on board, that's pretty sobering. Um, but the interesting thing is, it's a great book. It's well written. There's a there's a website. There's uh, there's uh, uh, now recipe books and all sorts of stuff on there. But what the book does is it, it goes to these five places and interviews people who are centenarians or in their nineties, and they say, so what do you do? Why? What? You know? How do you feel? Why have you lived so long? And so these are really interesting interviews and stories from around the world. And then what it does is it says, so what do we learn from this place? And what do we learn from this? And at the end, it draws them all together, as you'd expect in a book like this. And it says, so these are the nine factors in common. So let me share you the nine factors quite quickly, because they're, they're cool. Um, first one is move naturally. So they're not, these, these people around the world don't go to the gym and work out, don't run ultra marathons, but they do exercise. So a lot of them have gardens, they go walking, they're sheep farmers, they do, they keep fit. But the good news is for us, we have to be doing ultra marathons. We can just be doing normal stuff to keep. The second thing is they all have a purpose. And this is where that book Ikigai overlaps with uh, the Blue Zones, because they study the Japanese in um, Okinawa. And these have this word called uh, Ikigai, which is for purpose, which is um, why you get up in the morning, they describe it as. Um, And they say in the book that having a solid purpose pins your life can add seven years extra life expectancy. That, you know, this is one of the biggest parts of the nine areas, having a real purpose, a strong purpose. And you see that, and I see that all the time with people, and you see people sort of 
really struggling in life uh, about I don't have a purpose, you know, uh, uh, and I think it is so important that we feel we're, we've got something greater than ourselves that we're contributing towards. And we know this is a massive thing for organisations and for individuals. Literally a reason to live. Literally something to live for. Getting up in the morning and going, oh, really something to, 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 to live for. Uh, third thing is, um, it, they call it now, people have a technique called downshift. They have an ability to shed stress, whether that's through naps, whether that's through meditations, whether it's through meeting friends, uh, talking. But they have an ability to de-stress these people. They look for that. Um, the fourth thing is, they call it the 80% rule, which is you eat until you're 80% full. Uh, which is a struggle for all of us in the Western world, and, and especially was, you know, over Christmas, it, it, it certainly was a, a big struggle. Um, but they, they have that also, they all share this thing where they eat less towards the end of the day. So they, their smallest meal is in the evening. And I think the danger is for most of us, that becomes one of our biggest meals is in the evening. Um, the fifth one is plant-based food. Uh, they maybe eat meat once a week, um, but most of their diet is plant-based. Um, when they eat meat, it's not a, it's not a huge amount of it. Uh, the sixth is good news for us who like to have a drink because they all, apart from the Adventist, drink. drink. Uh, but they drink mainly wine, and they drink one or two glasses a day, and they never binge drink. And there is a special kind of wine that, that he talks about in the book, um, called uh, Cananau, wine from Sardinia, which I found on Amazon and got it delivered. I shouldn't have gone to Amazon, I know, but I got it delivered to my front door and it's nice wine. It's uh, high in flavonoids. Not that I know a lot about wine, but it's, it's actually a quite a nice wine. Um, so one or two glasses of red are recommended. Um, the sixth one is belong, feel you belong. A lot of these uh, people have a faith or a similar feeling of belonging to, to some organization, to some, uh, system bigger than who you are and then the last two uh, families first so uh, they nearly often have life partners and very close family units uh, where they live close around other families other parts of their family they invest time in their children um, and the final one is uh, and you know, I've heard this again and again is they mix with the what he calls the right tribe so they mix with like-minded people you know, if you're going to be helped on your journey, mix with people sort of like you, you know, beware. It was, it was, it was, um, was it Jim Rohn. He said you become the average of the six people you hang out with, you know. And so um, this right tribe is very much about that, you know. Um, and they say um, the average person's life expectancy goes up by 10 to 12 years by adopting these nine areas. And if you go onto the website, you can actually do, I think it's still free, you can, you can fill in their questionnaire about what your lifestyle is, and it'll tell you how long you're gonna live based on normal factors. You know, obviously we can all get things go wrong with us, but um, based on those factors, tell you what your life expects. So fascinating book. We can all take tips and tricks out of it and look at it and go, oh, I could do a bit more of that and a bit less of that. Thanks, Ian. I've read the book too. I really like it, but it was a long time ago. So I did what you suggest as you were telling me about the nine, I've awarded myself either zero, half a point or a full point against each one and I score six out of nine and I have some work to do. So I've really enjoyed it.
And where are we going now, Ben? Last one? We're going to Disney. The story of Robert Iger, who has been CEO. I think he was the sixth CEO of Disney. Uh, And it's the story of how he became CEO, some of the things that happened during his time as CEO of Disney. And it was a really transformational time for them, hugely successful period. And Mm. he talks about some of his leadership lessons as well. I quite like that about the book. But it's quite a good read. It's quite interesting. He talks about the acquisition of, of Pixar and Steve Jobs, and Robert's predecessor as CEO had alienated Steve and driven this chasm between Pixar and Disney, and there's this giant rift between Mm. them, and they kind of Mm. weren't on talking terms, and Disney was distributing Pixar films and had rights to the second and third episodes of films like Toy Story, and, and he tells how... Because, of course, Disney bought Pixar, which was unthinkable at the beginning of you know, the time that he became CEO. Mm. So it's really interesting uh, how he approached that. In fact, how he approached Steve and unlocked quite quickly, unlocked that whole situation and was able to to bring Pixar into to great success. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Amazing. How he approached that, that those conversations, his relationship with Steve became a lifelong friend. And and then they acquired Marvel and then Star Wars. I mean, big thinking, right? <laughs> you know, I know Disney is Disney, but Star Wars is Star Wars and Pixar is Pixar and to bring all of those together. So I find that really interesting listening. But something else, this is right from the beginning of, of the book. Robert talks about a couple of the things that went wrong, the really mm. tough moments. And it reminded me right away, you know, in any leadership position, I at least have always been humbled mm. and, and, and regularly taken a bit by surprise by the things that happened that you never would have expected to happen. And of course, I shouldn't be surprised because what's leadership about? It's about the people around us and people have lives and all sorts of things happen in their lives Um, but he talks about two things he talks about the Orlando nightclub shootings and they worked out that the shooter his primary target had been had been Disneyland and it was purely the the security that had knocked this guy off course and so what he did and they were able to to see this was you know on on his phone he he searched for the closest nightclubs and he went to the first one and there happened to be construction work going on outside and that was getting in the way so he went to the second one in his list and he went in and he tragically took many many lives and Robert talks about this and the effect it had on him and the responsibility he felt knowing that Disney had been the, oh. the target. And then the next is such a sad story. A two-year-old boy who was staying with his family at one of the, the Disney Resort hotels and had been outside down by the water and an alligator took him. Oh, I remember this. It was in the news, wasn't it? Yeah, um, 
just the the saddest story. It just reminded me that you know, in in any leadership position, these things are going to come up, and it's a part of it, and something we need to can't be ready for it. On a lighter note, he rounds up the book with his lessons to lead by. Uh, and there's there's quite a few pages of these and just uh, a few of them. Don't be in the business of playing it safe. Be in the business of creating possibilities for greatness. <laughs> don't start negatively and don't start small. People will often focus on little details as a way of masking a lack of any clear, coherent, big thoughts. If you start petty, you seem petty. Yeah. A company's reputation is the sum total of the actions of its people and the quality of its products. You have to demand integrity from your people and your products at all times. Yeah, yeah. You can do a lot for the morale of the people around you and therefore the people around them just by taking the guesswork out of their day-to-day life. A lot of work is complex and requires intense amounts of focus and energy. But this kind of messaging is fairly simple. This is where we want to be and this is how we're going to get there. Yeah. Hmm. What a great leader. Well, uh, you've given me three books over this course of this podcast which is interesting um which i'll have to read a couple of things from disney uh, from what you've said i took one is um uh, his strategic fit of what he was doing with pixar and marvel and star wars about how they they absolutely you can see it you know easily from the outside how they fit beautifully uh, but he obviously worked that out from the inside um but also you know one of the fascinating things about disney they have one of the best core purposes I've ever read, which is creating happiness. And uh, you can see creating happiness going through Pixar, going through Marvel, going through Star Wars. Uh, you bring that smile to your face. Um, just, you know, I'm, I'm not even a Star Wars fan or a Marvel fan, but, you know, I, I can see what they do for people. Um, so, you know, I found those fascinating. The other thing was, it just reminded me um, on the Lencioni podcast about office space. Lencioni said he visited Pixar when Jobs was there and he was taken around the Pixar offices and they were were scaled up to work in teams. You know, the way they work together. And he said it really looked energetic, the way they were all working like that. And it had reminded him when he was looking at the table group and how they set up to think back to how Pixar was set up. So back to those creative days, you know, we know from Jobs designing the Apple headquarters in Cupertino before he died, it was, he was looking at, you know, how you got people to interact, crossing the trees in the middle and uh, 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 to go from one side of the um, structure to the other. And so, um, you know, it's interesting how the connect, I make these connect, how we all make these connections between things you're bringing up, Robert Iger and what he's done there. Uh, and and other things we've come across. So, yeah, well, I hope we've um, we've left people with a few thoughts and ideas they can take away in this uh, holiday period. Then I, I hope so. So we're we're done. Twenty twenty is is done. Thank goodness for for that. Can't wait for twenty twenty one. Ian, thanks for creating Gritty Leaders Club with me. And everyone, thank you for for listening. We'll be back here in a fortnight. Cheers, man. Bring it on. Cheers. <laughs>